Welcome to this week's Law in Sport podcast with me, Sean Cottrell, the founder of Law in Sport. In this week's show, our guest is Jeff Benz. Jeff is an experienced private practice sports lawyer, having been the former general counsel of the United States Olympic Committee and is an arbitrator for the Court of Arbitration for Sport. In this interview, Jeff talks about his motivations for joining four new square chambers in London, his recent trip to Kenya for the Court of Arbitration for Sport, where arbitrators discuss case law and the 2013 CAS procedural rules, and we briefly discuss changes in the third draft of the revised Wilder Code and what those representing clients before the Court of Arbitration for Sport should look out for. Stay tuned for another amazing episode. Last week, I popped over to four new square chambers based over by the Royal Courts of Justice in London to interview Jeff Benz. Jeff, thanks for taking the time out to speak to me. Can you just start off by introducing yourself to those who don't know you? I'm Jeff Benz. I'm a lawyer from Los Angeles and a door tenant at Four New Square in London. So for those that don't know you, can you explain a little bit about your sports background and how you broke into sports law? So I started off as a figure skating athlete and may well be the first figure skating athlete to ever become a boxing executive. Uh, But one thing led to another and I quit my career as an athlete and a coach and a judge in my sport and went to law school. And over time, built a practice up uh, in San Francisco representing athletes and governing bodies and anybody that would pay me and sometimes not even pay me to represent them in sports to try to gain experience. One thing led to another and I became general counsel of the United States Olympic Committee after having first served as its trademark lawyer and litigator uh, for cases in the United States. Did that for about six years, left it and became a boxing executive Uh, and promoted professional fights and put boxing on television and did things that I never thought I would do before. Later became uh, chief operating officer and general counsel of the AVP Pro Beach Volleyball Tour, uh, which had me doing work on the iconic beaches of North America and Australia for a couple of years. Uh, I later went uh, traipsing around China with a content-based application for mobile phones for two years where I was a general counsel and COO of a startup uh, that was out doing that before everybody else was in China. Kind of took that experience and and retrenched back into private law practice in 2009, uh, or in 2000, sorry, 2011, and uh, have spent a fair amount of time building up a private law practice as well as a substantial neutral practice as an arbitrator and mediator in a wide variety of commercial cases, including sports entertainment. So can you tell me? Uh, so can you tell me what your can you tell me what your reasoning is for joining Four New Square? What was, what, can you tell me what your motivations are for becoming a door tenant at Four New Square and what it means to you and what you think that would do for your practice? So I've, I've recently taken a door tenancy at Four New Square here at Lincoln's Inn in London, um, and that's a product of several different things that I see, one of which is the increasing trend toward internationalization and interdependence of uh, sports law, legal issues, and general commercial issues. After all, at my core, I'm a commercial lawyer. Uh, Sport is one aspect of that and what I do, but um, it's hard in this day and age to remain competitive in delivering client service by having a purely domestic outlook. And uh, for me, this door tenancy is a natural extension of my efforts to um, build my practice internationally, to um, continue to serve as an arbitrator in international cases, 
to do that, I have to be aware of, sensitive to, and knowledgeable about international issues that come up. And I can do that better um, situated uh, with an office in London than I can by simply being based in Los Angeles. Uh, and so, uh, you know, the guys at Four News Square that are, that are already engaged in the sports practice have a very robust practice. Uh, they're very active, um, and uh, they came out of a similar background as me. We were all originally, in some way, shape, or form, insurance lawyers who got involved in sport later in our practice. And uh, it, it's, it's fun. It's interesting. It's a new, new form of collegiality for me. I have not been in a, in a uh, multi-personality, uh, multi-person uh, law firm environment in a number of years. Uh, and it's good to sort of return to that, to collaborate on common issues. But uh, also, at the end of the day, I'm hoping that this results in me uh, obtaining more appointments to mediate and arbitrate cases uh, in this industry that, that we all love and that I enjoy being part of. And how did you become an arbitrator for the Court of Arbitration for Sports? So I first was appointed as a CAS arbitrator in 2001 at the ripe old age of probably, see if I can do my math right, um, probably in the order of 30 or 31. And I immediately was hired as the general counsel of the U.S. Olympic Committee thereafter. So I essentially had a very difficult to waive um, conflict of interest that I couldn't, that didn't allow me to serve. So for a period of time uh, in those days, you could serve, both, you could be on the CAS panel and you could also be an advocate before CAS and cases. And I was the chief litigator for the U.S. Olympic Committee for cases that came up during the Olympic Games and at other things. So you can see my work in the outcome of the Apollo Ono speed skating case at the Salt Lake Olympic Games and a couple of other cases that arose in Athens in 2004. Uh, fortunately, in 2006, we really didn't have a lot of activity that arose at those games. Um, and then shortly thereafter, to, uh, CAS passed a rule that said you could only be an arbitrator uh, if you wanted to be an arbitrator and you couldn't appear as counsel in front of the CAS because it was a closed list. So shortly after I left the USOC in 2006, I started getting uh, domestic appointments in the court of first instance proceedings before the American Arbitration Association involving athlete claims uh, on right to compete, team selection, eligibility kinds of issues, and also in doping cases. Uh, and that led to an increasing number of appointments as a CAS arbitrator, uh, which has continued to this day. And probably at this point, I'm one of the more active American CAS arbitrators in, in taking appointments not only from American originating cases, but also from cases coming out of a wide variety of other parts of the world that have no tie to the United States. And do you enjoy it? Uh, to me, serving as a neutral is one of the most rewarding experiences a lawyer can have professionally and personally, um, and also, frankly, remunerat remuneratively. Uh, clients often don't pay their lawyers' bills, but customers never fail to pay the judge. So uh, serving as a neutral, uh, however, gives you this sort of well-rounded perspective on advocacy, decision-making, and all these things that you're taught from the angle of being a zealous advocate as a lawyer but you really don't appreciate in total until you have to sit there and receive those arguments uh, and then process them and attempt to regurgitate them in the form of an opinion that um, will be final and binding and that the parties will feel is, uh, whether they agree with the outcome or not, that they will at least feel is impartial and independent and fair. And what's the most interesting case you've been involved with? Well, uh, I've been fortunate to have a, a large number of fascinating cases that involve interesting fact patterns. Um, 
I think that one of the more interesting cases to serve as an arbitrator on uh, and to listen to the facts as they developed uh, was the LaShawn Merritt case, which was the case of the American uh, sprinter who uh, it, it made it a regular habit in the off-season of uh, purchasing an Extends product along with a magazine at a local 7-Eleven. Um, but, you know, those facts in real life uh, beat anything that most people can make up uh, in terms of hypotheticals or practice problems or anything else. Uh, and so that one was particularly rich uh, in, in interesting and fun facts to deal with as an arbitrator, but we, I think we reached the right outcome on that. And later on, that case spurred on the USOC versus IOC case that I think may, came to the right conclusion. I think most people think came to the right conclusion that uh, if you're going to sign on to the World Anti-Doping Code, you have to follow it, and you can't start imposing your own extra code penalties uh, depending on what you feel like within your home country or within your jurisdiction or something like that. So, um, you know, that's, that's one of the more interesting ones. There's many, many others that uh, I've been fortunate to be part of that I probably can't talk about. Um, for reasons of attorney-client privilege and or confidentiality of the arbitration process. Jeff, you were telling me before the interview that you just arrived back from Kenya um, after being on a function with the Court of Arbitration for Sport. Can you tell us what the purpose of the visit was um, and what was discussed? So I, I just came back. I'm just back from Nairobi uh, yesterday, actually, where... Um, in Kenya, the CAS held a seminar for arbitrators only to discuss various issues in the procedural developments in the CAS as well as uh, issues that would affect uh, arbitrations involving doping uh, or uh, football. And uh, we held that conference in the Masai Mara Game Preserve, which made it a fascinating uh, little experience. But we all, it was also an opportunity for arbitrators to share their perspectives on um, the development of CAS procedure and also on the development of specific case law in discrete areas. So among things that we covered at that conference were um, the, the existing CAS case law on um, specified substances, where it's been, uh, and then also where it's going under the revisions to the World Anti-Doping Code. Um, we covered the new CAS rules that took effect at the beginning of 2013, um, procedural rules that dealt with a wide variety of issues. And if you're going to practice before the CAS, uh, you should pay attention to these changes for 2013 and in particular look at the red line version of changes and summary of changes that's been put out uh, to understand some of them because some of them can have an impact on your presentation of the case. Uh, in particular, the uh, provision that relates to the production of evidence uh, or the use of exhibits in lower court proceedings and whether you can submit new evidence in uh, proceedings that happen on appeal before CAS. Uh, and then also how that particular rule plays out against the guarantee of de novo review under the CAS rules. So take a look at that if you're practicing in front of the CAS. Um, also, we covered the new developments, uh, the new changes to the World Anti-Doping Code as proposed in the latest draft uh, code, I think it's version three of the proposals, but um, the new code has significant you know, new highlights in it uh, from a legal standpoint and from a procedural standpoint for uh, arbitration panels. So um, the burdens of proof have changed a little bit. Uh, the basic fundamental burden remains the same, but the burden of going forward with evidence on certain things has changed. Uh, the 
uh, penalties have changed. So uh, no longer is it two years for a first offense. In most cases, it's four. Um, if Even in specified substances cases, if the anti-doping organization is able to show intentional use of a specified substance, uh, then they can get a four-year um, penalty for that. Um, you can, however, reduce now specified substances all the way down to a, a reprimand and anything up you know, beyond that um, for cases where you're able to establish no significant fault in your use of the specified substance. And then there's a new category called contaminated products. Uh, which requires an athlete to show certain things, but if they're able to fall within the ambit of the contaminated products provision, they can receive a lessened penalty uh, as a result of that, irrespective of whether the substance is a specified substance or some other substance off the prohibited list. Um, and there are all kinds of other uh, revisions to the code that I think um, you know, that, that lawyers in these cases, and in particular arbitrators, will need to be aware of and to educate themselves about. The good news is that WADA has been extremely communicative. Um, they have put out very good pieces on their website showing comparisons and red lines to prior versions and to the current code uh, versus the latest draft set of revisions. Um, they've provided a summary overview that sort of highlights what the key changes are. Um, and there's also a legal opinion from uh, a very uh, uh, significantly experienced European lawyer uh, and former jurist that uh, undertakes to deal with um, any issues that might arise under uh, international law relating to the application of the code to uh, athletes involved in sport. So uh, overall, you know, it's, it's whether you like or don't like the way WADA resolved these issues, uh, it's very easy to understand, you just have to sit and read uh, the red line to come to an understanding of some of the key changes, and, and it really is, uh, is probably a useful exercise to do before this gets implemented in South Africa in November, or approved at least in November, and probably implemented a couple months thereafter. Apart from your involvement with the Court of Arbitration for Sport, you're also involved with the Sports Lawyers Association, which is the membership association for sports lawyers in the United States of America. Can you talk about your involvement with them? and where you see the future of international sports law going. Um, what, what sort of, do you see the, the sort of developing trends being? So I've, I've was, I was very lucky in the United States to have a resource like the Sports Lawyers Association available to me. Uh, I've been involved in the SLA as a conference attendee or a member or a member of the board or a chairman of a committee uh, or a conference presenter for on the order of probably 16 or 17 years. Um, and we have a very active, uh, robust group in the United States. Uh, you can count on, if you attend one of our meetings, um, finding pretty much every general counsel of any organization you want to be affiliated with in sports in attendance, approachable, accessible, uh, and uh, if not presenting, at least uh, holding forth at the bar. Uh, but otherwise being part of, of the active discussion of what is sports law in the United States. This year, for the first time, um, under the leadership of the SLA presidents, Glenn Wong and Tony Agnone, and uh, with the involvement of myself and Travis Tigert as co-chairs of the International Committee of the SLA, um, we've initiated a uh, discussion, kind of loose partnership with the British Association for Sport and Law. So at this past year's SLA meeting, we had uh, three speakers that came over that were designated by um, Basel to participate in our conference on various issues that were of interest to our members. 
Um, we had Nick Cowan from the Premier League, and we had Nick Bytel from the London Marathon and UK Sport, or well, I guess it's Sport England. And uh, we also had Graham McPherson from here at 4 News Square. Uh, and I have to tell you that the feedback we got on the participation of these three individuals was some of the highest we've ever gotten for conferences. Um, I, it, it really made my heart sing to, in a country like mine that has traditionally struggled with embracing what you call football here in Europe to see the line of people that wouldn't leave Nick alone <laughs> to talk about the Premier League. Um, it was really something interesting and special. He literally could not be left alone until he got on the plane or left the hotel for the airport. Uh, and that was great. That was really, that really shows that I think we're, by doing this, we're um, recognizing that sport has become increasingly international, that there really is a body of Lex Sportiva that transcends national boundaries at some basic level, um, that in our respective countries and jurisdictions, we solve problems in our own way within our own legal system, but we all have similar problems, and we can learn from how we've each learned in solving those problems how to perhaps make each of our systems better. So uh, part of the goal of this effort to reach out to Basel has been to uh, attempt to uh, not only transcend the development of Lex Sportiva, but also provide interesting conferences for our respective members that involve um, people involved in a timely way and an important way in the legal issues that arise in sport in each of our respective areas, uh, and also to drive new membership to our organizations because that's what we're about. We're about promoting sport law as a separate body of law that is worthy of the same distinction as entertainment law or construction law or things like that. And I think we've done a fairly good job of that. So at this upcoming Basel conference in uh, a matter of weeks in October of this year, uh, you will see that Don Fear is coming. Don is the former head of the Major League Baseball Players Association, and he's also the current head of the NHL uh, Players Association. So he's had two very prominent union jobs in American sport, and he's been a very prominent leader in that field. In fact, he probably epitomizes the, the role of the labor lawyer in sport on the side of labor. Uh, and he's done that for the better part of the 20th century and now into the 21st. Uh, and uh, he'll be speaking about how we approach what you all call financial fair play in football, and we call a salary cap. Um, but, you know, flip side, similar problem, different issues. How, but how do you create parity and uncertainty in sports so that it remains interesting um, for fans and um, uh, doesn't simply become, you know, over time, one team beating up against another team, and that's it. And so uh, he'll be talking on that topic. And then we also have the general counsel of the Brooklyn Nets, Jeff Gewertz, coming over. Uh, and he will be talking about sports sponsorship issues in the United States and how they're addressed and resolved and dealt with. And finally, Bill Bach, the general counsel of USADA, will be sitting on a panel at the conference, uh, I believe talking about issues related to USADA. Most likely he'll touch probably on... Um, the high-profile cases of the day. Um, but anyhow, it's, it's a robust offering, and it's the first time that we've, the two organizations have collectively sort of concertedly thought about how to do this, and I think it will, be, it will better Lex Sportiva in the end. Um, and I think that uh, if this goes well, we're on the verge of possible similar outreach efforts with the folks in Australia and New Zealand, um, as well as uh, finding continental equivalents uh, that we can all talk to, even though we may not speak literally the same language. Um, but we at least are dealing with the same issues. Uh, and so uh, this process goes on. And just like the development of Lex Sportiva 
continues to develop irrespective of the individuals involved. Uh, this will continue on, uh, hopefully, well into the future with or without my involvement or anyone else who's currently in it. So. Well, that was Jeff Benz, a Court of Arbitration for Sport Arbitrator, a private practice lawyer, and now a door tenant at Four New Square Chambers in London. Well, that's all we have time for for this show, but thank you for tuning in. Remember, you can go to www.lawandsport.com for all your latest expert commentary and analysis of the legal developments from the world of sport. You can follow us on Twitter at Law in Sport or go to our YouTube channel, Law in Sport TV. Thank you for tuning in.